The reading today comes from Matthew 1, 18 through 24. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name. So about five years ago, when it was our first Christmas in Madison, around that season, uh, I was sitting at a till at Starbucks, uh, and um, two college-age girls came in, and uh, they started to um, jump up and down, like begin to bounce. <laughs> they, they let out this, of course they're girls, so like a little bit of a scream. Like there's, there's excitement. They, they started to grab one another um, a little bit like this and, you know, bounce and, you know, and, and I wasn't sure what was going on. And then I overheard them that, that of course, the holiday red cups had come in. <laughs> and they were so excited. It had evoked this zeal, this joy. Uh, they were texting their friends. And, um, you know, of course, there was, not, there was no small amount of cynicism in the room as people observed what was happening. Uh, but, you know, all that to say, like, this season, no matter where you're coming from in terms of your perspective on Christmas or your beliefs, uh, it's hard to stay neutral, you know? Uh, this season, it either evokes oftentimes great excitement, great expectations, uh, or for others, there's the whole other spectrum of great grief um, in terms of those who, haven't, who are no longer around. Or perhaps it's just a season of transition and what was isn't what it used to be. And this season just kind of brings all that to the surface. Now, the last few weeks we've been looking through uh, the prophet Isaiah. And we've been doing this because before the first Christmas happened, there were expectations and there were longings that those people had where there's this, there's this promise that there's someone coming who would actually, in the end, would make nations, they'd, they'd take their instruments of war, and they would actually beat them into instruments that could cultivate agriculture. In Isaiah 11, we, we looked at how there's to be this, this one who would come, this leader who would actually emerge, and he would use his power to protect those on the margins, to, to protect those who didn't have power. We saw last week in Isaiah 35 this, this procession of, of people coming back home and used use this description that there is this everlasting joy that was marking. 
And all of these expectations and all of these longings were all centered on this reality that there was going to be a king that was going to come and bring about all of that. And our text this morning, from the Gospel of Matthew, is a big neon sign. It's Matthew saying, this king, he's come. Let me tell you about him, this long-awaited king who is to bring peace and justice. He's come. And our text this morning really dials into two questions, answers two questions. What's the, what's the origin of this king? Where did he come from? And then lastly, why did he come? Why did he come? So before we kind of dial into those two questions in this text, let me pray, and then we can hop right in. So, so Father, we come this morning and um, just pray whether we're on a spectrum of great expectations this season, or perhaps on the other side of it with um, much grief and perhaps despair, uh, that in these moments you would meet us, that you would do something that would change us, and that ultimately our eyes uh, would be more fixed on your son Jesus this season. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So, uh, in July of 2013, it was a significant event in July. I don't know if you remember this back a couple years ago, but Prince William and his wife Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge, they had their first kid. Huge deal. I'm sure all of you were just, you know, like, what's it going to be? And Henry was born. Prince Henry. Prince George, sorry. I got it right. Look at this. I, that was a trick. That was a complete trick. I want to see who actually knew. I said Henry, I get this look from one person like, no, that's not right. It was Prince George. Good job. I failed. Um, so Prince George was born. And here's the deal. By virtue of his, of his birth, he is now the third in line to the throne. That lineage stretches back almost 1,200 years. The reason why he's third in line to the throne is strictly speaking, all because of his last name. All because of his descendant, of being a descendant of this first king of England. And Matthew, in this text, opens with a genealogy, a family tree, and it's in chapter 1. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he does this for a very specific reason. Because, for example, in Isaiah 11, when we looked at a couple weeks ago, it was clear that this king that was promised, that was going to come and bring peace and justice and joy, there was a specific line that this king was to emerge from. And it was from the line of David. And you see in verse 1, he says, Jesus Christ, the son of David, he is making a claim he is saying, this Jesus who I'm going to tell you about, he is in this line. Now, if you continue down this kind of family tree, this genealogy, he gets to Solomon, and then we get to Jesus in verse 16. And it says this, and 
Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, at first glance, there seems nothing odd about that. That's great. But what's really odd is that in this, geneal- in this genealogy, over and over again, it says, so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. And do you notice how different it is when Matthew gets to Jesus? He says, he doesn't say, Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the father of Jesus. He says, the husband of Mary called Christ. And it should make you wonder and pause and go, wait, what's, what's going on here? Why didn't he just continue to say, Joseph, the father of Jesus? What's happening? And that's exactly why this text is here before us today. It's written to ask that question, explain what do you, what's going on here? How is Jesus related to Joseph? And not only that, is how is Jesus ultimately connected to the line of David, of whom was this promised king that was to come? Because if, if Jesus is not related to David, then he cannot be the king. It's a really important question. And what's really great is I love the Bible because it just opens up with a scandal. I mean, this could be like teen. Check this out. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his, Mary mo- when, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So just stop for a moment here. Betrothed. What does that mean? Okay, because that's not a common word we use today. And in fact, it's kind of like an amped up engagement. Okay? Really amped up. What would happen back then is a guy and a girl would get together and they'd make, say, hey, you're mine, I'm yours, great. But then, after that, they would actually go away for a year and actually live with their parents for a year. They wouldn't come together at all. And then after a year, they'd have this public ceremony. So, as this happens here, it's in that time span of that year ceremony. And Mary is found to be with child. Like, that's a scandal. You know? Especially back then. Especially back then. When you think about, I mean, like, there's no MTV Teen Mom which glamorizes things. There's nothing like that. Um, What is Joseph going to do? His girl is pregnant. It's not his. What's he going to do? So verse 19, it says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Um, He's a kind kind guy. He's a nice guy. He says, you know, I'm not going to just, you know, break this to TMZ. I'm going to just, we're going to deal with this quietly. I'm going to just divorce her quietly. So in verse 20, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I mean, can you imagine getting that one, right? Um, No doubt skepticism in your mind at this point, right? You're like, let me get this straight. So you're telling me that an angel, who which I've never seen before, appears to Joseph 
tells Joseph, guess what? The origin of that pregnancy, it's not this guy from this other village. It's actually the Holy Spirit. I mean, that, that sounds, well, let's just put it clearly, miraculous, right? So let me just say a couple things. Uh, if you're here this morning and you come to this text and you come to it with a lens that most of our Western culture has and says, I don't, I don't know if I can take this test. I don't know if I can. Um, I was going to say a couple things. I, I, at one point, I was, I was going to say, hey, if you think this is a myth, I was going to quote C.S. Lewis. He's this Oxford professor, and he's this guy who was very well read, read all the ancient literature, read all these different things, and when he read the Gospels, he, read, he said this, I've been reading poems and romances, vision literature, legends, myths, all of my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. <laughs> Thereby implying you should look a little bit more deeply into this. Is this true? For those of you who are going to say, well, maybe this is just a legend. Maybe it just happened, you know, like it was kind of a story that kind of evolved. I was going to say, actually, if you look at the dating of Matthew and when it was written, around 50 or 60 AD, like you, it wasn't long enough to evolve that way. But I don't want to, I don't want to actually go into any of those points very much this morning. I actually want you to know that if you are skeptical of this account, I actually want you to know you're actually in good company. I want you to understand that Matthew's original audience would have had problems with what just went down. And the reason why I know that is because of what Matthew does next in this text. What does Matthew do next? He stops his account right there. He knows, hold on, they aren't going to drag, they, they aren't going to just take this hook, line, and sinker. I got I to gotta let them know something. And look at verses 22 and 23. What the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Matthew do? Matthew quotes something from the prophet Isaiah. He takes something of their own story, of their own narrative, of the scriptures of which they are very familiar with, and he says, guys, don't you understand? This was actually foretold. Now, um, this actual quote is from Isaiah 7, verse, chapter 7, verse 14, and today, most of us, we are not familiar with what Happens. So, while I have you here, let me go ahead and digress and tell you what went down here in Isaiah 7. There's this king. His name is Ahaz. And he's in the southern kingdom, and, and they're in trouble. There's two powers to the north of him who'd made an alliance. And it looks like they're threatening to come down and totally take over what he has. And as you might expect, the king is nervous. What is he going to do? Well, God comes to King Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah and says, Ahaz, chill. God's got it. Totally has it. He's going to make sure you're okay. He's going to... But not only that, God knows he's, he's young. He's probably 20 or 21. He's the king. He knows it would probably be helpful if maybe there was a sign that I could provide for Ahaz so that he could trust that my word is true. And so the prophet Isaiah gives him a blank check. 
says, here you go. What do you want? Tell me what sign you want me to do, and I will do it for you so you can put trust in my word. Now, King Ahaz, you would think, would say, sweet, let's double down, let's get this figured out. But King Ahaz says, I don't want to put the Lord to the test. Now, at first, that sounds really spiritual. Like, hey, I don't, I don't need any more help. I can trust God. But that's not what he's doing. It's a smokescreen. With another country, so he can form an alliance, so he can feel secure. Nevertheless, God is gracious and provides a very specific sign in Isaiah 7, which is quoted here. That a young woman or virgin would give birth to a boy whom his mother would name Emmanuel. It was a sign that God would be with him and his people and that they would be rescued and they'd be saved. And if you go on in Isaiah 7, you can look at Isaiah 8, there is a baby born and there is kind of an immediate fulfillment that happens. But Matthew is saying, don't you see that this child back in Isaiah's day was a sign of God's deliverance in the midst of crisis, so now there is another child. In fact, the ideal Davidic ruler who would actually embody Emmanuel, God's presence in its fullest sense, and he has now arrived to deliver you. You see, Matthew is meeting his audience in the midst of their skepticism. And he's saying, the same God who's been at work in the past has already put a precursor down in your scriptures. He's actually happened. So don't chuck this account because it doesn't fit with what you think is palatable to your reason. Trust this account. Um, and, and, and if you're here and you're not a Christian and, and you're exploring it, I, I would call those of you considering those claims today, um, I would just do exactly what Matthew does. He says, don't reject what you think is unpalatable to your way of thinking until you consider the broader account of Scripture. Don't just say, well, because I look here and this seems ridiculous, I'm going to chuck the whole thing. Matthew says, no. Um, let me say, if, if, if you're here this morning and you're curious or you're skeptical, um, talk to me afterwards. I've, I've got a couple, I've got a book for you, and I've also got a couple ways to go about where you might explore in the Scriptures to look more into this. Um, but I'll leave it there for now. So, after Matthew engages them with their scriptures about this fulfillment, he picks up the story again, and in verse 24 and 25, this is how it ends. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, what's really, what's really amazing about this is you read that, and unless you understand what's going on, you don't really understand what's going on. It's, it's simply this. Joseph married to be his wife, and by naming Jesus, he officially adopts Jesus. Guess what? That promise of a king who would come from the line of David, guess what? Jesus meets that requirement. He is officially, by virtue of his adoption, he is a son of David. 
And we oftentimes, like, we, we like, I mean, we just kind of go over this account and we just kind of, oh yeah, got that one, on to the next thing. But just consider for a moment, this promise, what God had made a thousand years before to King David, that one of his descendants would come, and that from him, years ago, and as we read in the, in, in the prophet Isaiah, we read about how this king was to bring peace and justice and joy. Matthew is saying that long-awaited king has now arrived. And his name is Jesus. All the hopes, all the longings, all the expectations wrapped up in all of that all converged to this text in Joseph taking Mary and naming this boy Jesus. No matter your persuasion this morning or belief, like, that is a huge claim. This is an amazing claim. And it begs the question, how will you respond? But, but we've got to wait for a moment, because there's one other thing this text does, and that really gets down to the fact of what is the mission of this king why is he here? What is his agenda? What's he going to do? And in verse 21, it, it's, it's actually very explicit. Um, the angel says this, She will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Um, Jesus has come to save. He's come to deliver. I don't know if you guys remember this name, but Chelsea Sullenberger. About six years ago, uh, he was piloting a jetliner full of 155 people. And he was in New York City of all places. And both engines go out. And Sully as his nickname is, right? He somehow maneuvers this jet with 155 people on board and lands it in the Hudson River. And all 155 survive. Like, there's like a couple of like broken legs, like that's it. Like, I mean, driving with me, it could get, it, I mean, it gets worse than that, you know? I mean, <laughs> this is... He's taking a jetliner with no engines, and it's called the miracle on the Hudson. I mean, it's, it's crazy. If, if, if we talk to any of those 155 on board, if we ask them, what does it mean to be saved? I bet you they'd probably tell us about that. To be saved, to be delivered, it means to be rescued from imminent danger. And it says this in the text, that Jesus has come to save his people from their sin. That that's the danger. Um, there was a, uh, a book a number of years ago called the, uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And one of the sections, it described the world of what it would be like if there was no sin. And I want to read this to you because this is, this is really helpful. Here's what they write, the author writes, There would be strong marriages, secure children, Nations and races would treasure differences. Government officials would still take office, but to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth. 
and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Hashtag Trump, right? Um, that's not in there. Um, business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions. Middling Harvard students would respect the Phi Beta Kappas from the University of South Dakota. And intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. Above all, God would preside in the unspeakable beauty for which human beings long. I love that quote because what it does, it actually, you know what it, you know what it does? It actually puts like concrete terms on what a world of peace, justice, and joy would look like. If it all rushed in right now. And I don't want us to miss out on this for a moment. You know, it's, it's easy, right, for the moment to look at the Trumps of the world and perhaps um, uh, really uh, prideful Harvard students, right? Or Phi Beta Kappas or all that different things and go, oh yeah, I get the problems out there. The reality of sin is that the presence and power and penalty of sin is upon all. It's affecting each and every one of our lives. And at its core, Sin does this, it separates us from a God who is holy and just. And we are in imminent danger. But that this is the news. That this Jesus has come and he has come to save us from the presence and the power and the penalty of sin and to bring a world of peace and justice and joy. Matthew later records in his gospel what we'll participate in in just a few moments, and it's where Jesus gathers his twelve and he gets them around a meal, right? How is he going to bring about a world of peace and justice and joy? What's he going to do? He's going to give his body. He's going to give his blood so that God doesn't have to destroy us but can actually deliver us from sin. That Jesus rises from the dead defeating death and Satan and all the effects of sin. And Matthew in just a few short verses, saying, that one is Jesus. He's a long-awaited king. He's come. He's been born. He's from the line of David. And of course, you know, the question is, how will you, how will you respond? And you know what's interesting? In this text, there are actually two responses we see. Um, you actually have to look a little bit deeper to see the first one. And actually, it goes back to the Isaiah account. You actually have to go to King Ahaz. You remember that story I just told you a while ago. Um, King Ahaz, God says, hey, um, tell me what to do. I'll give you a sign. Trust my word. I will deliver you. King Ahaz says, I don't want to test you. 
But really, what's he doing? In his back pocket, he's trusting himself. He's going, I want security. I want comfort. I want power. I'm going to make an alliance with this nation over here. Do you know what happens after that? God does rescue um, Judah. They, 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 they are not taken captive by those two other nations. But do you know what happens because of King Ahaz's decision? Later on, judgment comes. Later on, judgment comes. King Ahaz did not trust God's sign of deliverance. But the other, the other side of this is Joseph. <laughs> what does Joseph do? And by the way, he's got a lot, he, like, I mean, that kid has a lot riding on this, okay? Like, girlfriend pregnant, I'm sorry, not girlfriend, wife pregnant, right? And then the news is this, oh yeah, um, that baby that's going to be born, name him Jesus, it's from the Holy Spirit. What does Joseph do? He doesn't take the easy road, does he? He could have quietly divorced Mary. What does he do with God's sign of deliverance? He trusts it. He trusts it. He takes it. He believes it. And he follows. How will you respond? Um, let me say this. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, um, please consider this. What if, what if the God of the universe who created everything actually has drawn near to put the world to rights? What if he has done so through the arrival of this long-awaited king? What if he has done that in order to draw near to you? What if that really happened? Because Christmas, that's, the, that's what it's about. It's, it's the claim that that actually has happened, that God actually has drawn near. Um, <clears throat> you know, for those of you who have put your trust in this sign, in this king. Um, you know, it's really one of those seasons where it, it's, it's seeing it sink deeper into the very fabric of our soul. Um, you know, as I, as I think back um, to those two girls at Starbucks um, who were bouncing up and down, texting their friends, getting so excited about red holiday cups, you know, um, as I see, um, as I wake up this morning, and the first thing my son Sam says, Dad, five days till Christmas, you know? And I can, in my, I'm older, I get it, been around this block, like just, you know, it's fun to see you excited about it. I'm going to temper it a little bit. Um, and of course, he's excited about presents, let's be honest, you know, who isn't, right? I mean, that makes sense. But here's the deal. However misguided I thought maybe those two girls at Starbucks were, 
however misguided or however like, oh, he's just young. My kid's five. He's just, you're seven, whatever, you know. I got his age. I know how old my son is. Um, <laughs> if you undergird, if you understand what this season is actually about, um, that's actually a great glimpse of an appropriate response. In Luke's gospel, um, an angel approaches shepherds in the field, and, he, and, and the angel says this, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this news that has reached our ears this morning. Thanks for your grace and mercy which has arrived in the birth of your Son. Pray this morning that you'd meet those gathered here in the morning, in the midst of their doubts and questions, that you would reveal yourself. I pray, Father, in the midst of a season of perhaps merriment for some and some a season of really grief, that you may fix our eyes on you. And in so doing, that you might deepen our joy, that you might comfort the weary and from this community, May this news spread. Amen.